Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and today is the final episode of Season 1 for this podcast. So uh, we'll be taking a break for basically the month of August, and we'll come back uh, in September with the new episode of Season 2. So I wanted to end not with a law of the day, per se, but I wanted to go over another passage that I find to be pretty fitting in the current climate that we're in, culturally speaking, at least here in the United States, where we have a push for stronger government, more government control um, over finances, over medical care, uh, over people's every, everyday decisions. So the passage that I think is, is pretty striking is from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, I think I've gone over this passage before, but it is the section where the people of Israel are asking for a king, but they're not asking for a godly king. They're asking for a different kind of king. So here uh, is the section I want to read, and it's 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 through 20. And after I read it, then I'll go into the main topic today, which is to review a pretty important article that uh, I've read recently that's actually 40 years old. And when I read it and when you go through it with me, I think that you'll be surprised at how relevant that article is. But first, the passage from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here's what it says. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. All right, that's the passage today. Now, before I go into the article that I want to share with you, I just want to point out a little bit of the context here. Israel wanted a king, but not a godly king. They they saw the nations around them, and they wanted to have a king like those nations. So it was a kind of an envy, if you will. And they saw the nations, they saw the kings of these nations, these pagan nations, and the kings looked glorious, and the people loved their king, or at least looked like they loved their king. And Israel wanted it to be like that for them. And they wanted three things from this king. They wanted this king to judge them, so basically to expound the law and to discern good from evil, to essentially rule over them, to settle disputes, and to uh, make decisions for them. He wanted, they wanted that king to go out before them, 
So to represent the people, okay, to be their hero, to be their their icon, if you will, to represent them uh, in public all the time. And they wanted, they wanted the king to fight their battles, to protect them and provide for them, uh, kind of like the other nations did for their pagan peoples. Now, Samuel says that what they will get is tyranny. They'll be like the other nations. Oh, yes, they will. They'll have a tyrant over them. They will become slaves and servants. And they will not be free, but they will be impoverished. And God will not hear them because they will choose tyranny and slavery over God and freedom. Now, uh, this concept of having a king like the other nations, this is not the only place in Scripture that talks about this this dichotomy, if you will, between the, um, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, or as, as some theologians in the past have put it, the city of God and the city of man. And in fact, uh, Augustine, who uh, lived in the uh, 300s and 400s AD, he wrote a book called The City of God, and he shows the differences between these two cities. And what's interesting is, and this is what leads me into the article that I want to read uh, portions of to you and, and kind of comment on it, is that the Tower of Babel is another incident where we see a, a, a contrast or a dichotomy between God's kingdom and the kingdom of man, the city of man. And in the Tower of Babel, as many of you uh, are probably familiar, we have uh, mankind seeking unity but not, not unity in God, but unity apart from God, and a desire to reach heaven by their own power and their own strength, and to not, um, to not go out and be scattered, to not go and fill the world and multiply and subdue it, basically out of rebellion against God. And so this leads me to reading this article. Now, this article is from a theologian, Christian theologian, who has since passed away. Uh, his name is Rusus John Rushduni, and I've mentioned some of his works in previous episodes, uh, and I highly recommend all of them. I think that there's just so many things he wrote about that are so relevant to today. Now, this article is called The Society of Satan. So, pretty strong, pretty strong title there, but it was written in 1979. So just keep that in mind as I read portions of this article. It's only just four pages long. You can even find it online, and I'll encourage you to to read it. It's it's free online. Just search for Society of Satan by Rush Dooney, 1979. So 40-plus years ago, he wrote this article. And I want to now share with you a few portions of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but... I will definitely be reading a good chunk of it uh, that I think is pretty relevant. So we'll just begin here in the very opening paragraph of his article. Quote, Man is inescapably religious. He may deny God, but all the categories of his life remain religious, and all are categories borrowed from the triune God. Since the only world man lives in is the world God created, his thinking, even in apostasy, is inevitably conditioned and governed by a God-given framework. 
Men cannot escape that framework. They may deny God's sovereignty, but they cannot stop believing in sovereignty. They merely transfer it to man or to the state. Total law and planning, i.e. predestination, is inescapable. Denied to God, it is simply transferred to the scientific, socialist state, which predestinates or totally governs and plans all things. If deity be denied to the God of Scripture, it merely reappears in man or the state. And if the church ceases proclaiming the gospel, then religion does not perish. It reappears as politics or economics, and salvation continues to be offered to inescapably religious man. Salvation is a necessity of man's being, and the goal of salvation is new life and freedom. If salvation be not accepted in God through Christ, then it is accepted in man, or in an order of man, such as the state. End quote. So there, we see in that opening paragraph, he's highlighting there's two choices that humans make. And and they're religious. Humans are religious no matter what. And we see this all throughout Scripture. They're, they're going to be religious. They're going to worship something, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar's statue or, or King Darius or Caesar is Lord, offering a pinch of incense to Caesar or Pharaoh, who is himself styled the son of Ra. So humans are religious. That is a given. They will believe in something and they will serve something. And of course, Humans being made in God's image, they either serve the one true God or idols, maybe themselves as an idol. And the fact is that Rushduni points out that um, you're either going to worship God or something else, and predestination, all those things, they still exist. If you don't believe in a God who's sovereign, who can make all things new, who can fix all problems, who will bring ultimate justice upon the earth one day, well, you're just going to transfer that idea to something else, to the government, to the state. It'll be the state. It'll be Caesar who makes all things new. It'll be Caesar who solves all problems, who wipes every tear from our eyes, and who ends war and stops death. We will believe in an omniscient God, but it might be the God of Scripture or it might be the state. And as we leave God and, and go to worship something else, such as the state, um, our idols, we, we try to give them God's attributes. You have omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. You know, the government knows the heart of humans and whether there's hatred or not in a crime, hate crimes, or omnipotence. Every area of our lives is affected by the state that controls and runs and plans all things. An omnipresence, the state is everywhere, increasing its presence, maybe through policemen, or maybe through the citizens. Maybe every citizen rats out and reports on every other citizen, and so in effect, every citizen is a tentacle or an agent of the state. So this is what, what Rushduni begins in this article. Now, he goes on to talk about the concept of, of environmentalism. Now, by this phrase, he is not referring to the um, kind of religious philosophy in trying to, you know, bring nature back 
to some kind of state of innocence or um, you know, lifting up nature or highlighting the importance of Mother Nature or preserving the environment. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually going to talk about here how humans blame the environment. So let me, let me read uh, this, this section here. Quote, The Hebrew word for cover, kafar, is also the word for atonement. Atonement is thus a covering for sin, and it can be an evasive covering or the covering provided by God. It can be self-righteousness or the righteousness of God in Christ. Man constantly seeks a covering for his guilt and shame in institutional facades. And one of the most popular hiding places from God is the institutional church. We can add that man seeks in institutional structures an apron or a covering for his sin. And the deeper the guilt and shame, the greater the structural development. Atonement as basic to institutional and especially civil structures is an important fact of history. Citizenship was once a religious act, and politics rested on atonement. The Greek polis was a religious entity, and modern politics has no less a religious frame of reference, in that it is still concerned with neutralizing sin and evil by means of institutional structures. Sinful men, united by the state, somehow, it is expected, will create a good society. Man's basic and original sin is to be as God, knowing good and evil. Knowing here has the force of determining, establishing, so that man's essential sin is to attempt to play God and to legislate creatively and substantively on the nature of morality in terms of his own Godhead. Man, seeking to be God, became less the man. Adam's response to God's question is to evade responsibility. It is the woman's fault, he says in effect. Poor, innocent man that I am, how could I resist the woman's wiles? In my innocence, I have been led astray. More than that, the fault is yours, God, for giving me the woman, the woman thou gavest me. Had you not given her, I would not have sinned. Eve is no less evasive of responsibility. Poor, innocent woman that I am, how could I withstand the serpent's guile? Not for all the world would she deliberately have done wrong. The guilt lies elsewhere. Guilt thus is transferred. It is projected on the environment, made part of the ultimate frame of things, passed on to others, evaded by transference and projection. Guilt is denied to the individual in the name of social and natural forces. Concretely, juvenile delinquency today is blamed on the parents, the home, or the environment. And it is commonplace for judges, with a smattering of psychiatry and welfare theory at their command, to excoriate already burdened parents with a fearful burden of misplaced guilt. Again, crime is blamed on the environment, on heredity, on any number of natural and social forces. So that punishment is criminal. The guilt is societies, and especially somehow the non-criminals, for having fostered this tragic chain of reactions we call crime. Let the good men pay the price, therefore, and let the have-nations pay off the have-nots for the affront of their success and affluence. End quote. So here, Rushduni points out, again, this is 40 years ago, that we have this mentality of guilt being transferred upon somebody. And that's the 
That's the key, though, is that humans are guilty. We, we recognize that guilt exists in this world. The question is, how do we deal with it? Um, in, in the Christian worldview, that guilt has to fall on somebody. Somebody has to pay the penalty for the brokenness, for the evil, for the, for the crimes, for the sins. And unless Jesus Christ takes that guilt, then we as humans are going to find some other way or try to find some other way to deal with that guilt. If that guilt's upon us, we will try to subvert or, or, or smother or drown that guilt, cover over it, maybe with drugs, maybe with alcohol, maybe with escapism into, into video games or uh, other forms of entertainment. Um, or we're going to transfer or, or finger point that guilt onto somebody else and say, my problems and the problems of this world, that is somebody else's fault. It wasn't my fault. It was the environment. You know, maybe it's climate change. All these problems. It's not us. It's not our sin. It's climate change. This nebulous idea. It's, it's the environment. Or it's the guilt of some other group. Those who came before us. The industrial era. Or white people. Or Americans. Or men. You know, whatever the case may be. Somebody else gets the guilt pinned upon them. And so, who, what happens to guilty parties? Well, when it comes to that, they have to die. Those who are guilty should bear the punishment. Now, in, in a real world that's focused on true justice, only those who are truly guilty, in accordance with God's word, will get punished. But in our idolatrous world, no, 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 no. Those who are not really guilty, they're going to be blamed anyways, and they will bear the punishment. So that's where now, today, 40 years after this article was written, we have a culture of victims where everybody's a victim, nobody's guilty except certain groups of people, white, male, straight, cisgendered, whatever you want to call it, founding fathers, slave owners, doesn't really matter, right? It's always somebody else, though. Someone else is guilty, and we're not responsible for our behavior. And so we want to punish them. We want to cancel them, or we want to pursue reparations, or whatever the case may be. It's this idea of victimhood, and that stems all the way back to the concept of guilt and how is guilt to be handled or dealt with. So let me continue on in the article. Uh, going down to a few uh, few paragraphs later, he talks about the issue of race and equality, which I imagine he was dealing with in the 1970s, or he saw portions of that. But here is what he has to say, quote, The biblical concept is calling, and its orientation is not democratic, but divisive. Dewey, he's referring to John Dewey, was right in a common faith in calling Christianity's basic division between heaven and hell, saved and lost, sheep and goats, as undemocratic. I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal as a vital, moral, and spiritual ideal in human affairs is possible without surrender of the conception of the basic division to which supernatural Christianity is committed. The implication of Dewey's position is clear-cut. Grading by God or man is anti-democratic moral, 
and spiritual distinctions are by nature aristocratic. Exactly so. Our faith is clearly anti-democratic and holds to an aristocracy not of works, nor of blood inheritance, but of grace. And, instead of a transference of guilt, it is the essence of biblical faith to confess it, declaring with David that sin is primarily and essentially an offense against God. For us, there can be no brute factuality but only God-given factuality, a totally personal universe. The society or city of God is thus marked by a radically different approach to every fact in all creation. End quote. So here he goes into quoting John Dewey, a very well-known secular author and writer and philosopher. But he points out that there is an aspect of Christianity that is not democratic. Okay, there's that distinction between heaven, hell, sheep, goats, God's people, not God's people, those who are in and those who are out. Now, there is inclusion in the sense that anybody who repents and believes in Jesus Christ will be saved and will be part of God's people. That's the only requirement, repentance. It's not by your works, it's by faith alone. But there is still that distinction. Not everybody is equal. We're all equally sinners, of course. We're all equally made in the image of God, of course. But everyone is given different gifts, and God has shown grace to some and not to others. God chose Israel in the Old Testament, of course, to be his people. And in that sense, they were not equal to the Egyptians or to the Persians or Babylonians or Assyrians or Canaanites. They were God's special prized possession, his beloved, even though they didn't earn it, and it wasn't because of their works that they got it. It was by God's grace. So the distinction is God-made, and that's what Rush Dooney is trying to point out here. But I want to continue, because he goes on to talk about how the government is trying to end all problems and to essentially undo the effects of the fall without approaching God. Here's what he says, quote, Make it unnecessary for man to work, unnecessary for man to be good, impossible for man to be bad. Provide man with such a cushion of social planning that temptations asserted that man might neither hunger nor thirst, work or suffer, believe or disbelieve, succeed or fail, be good or evil. Let his every need be met, and his world be ordered in terms of his wishes. Let it be a trouble-free world, cradle to grave security. Let there be no failure. No failure is tolerable, and none is recognized, save one, God's, for having dared to create a world in which we can suffer for our sins, in which we can be tried and tested, in which we can be good or evil, in which we can and must be men. End quote. So he goes on here to talk about how this idea of shifting blame, it ultimately goes back to blaming God. You know, we, we want this world that is trouble-free and has no problems and no difficulties. So whose fault really is it? Well, it's really God's fault. God for having created the world in which we can suffer for our sins. How dare he do that? Uh, a world in which we can choose to be good or evil. How dare God call us to be good. How dare he? 
in which we can and must be men. So, so that's the idea there is that this, this desire to um, shirk responsibility and to basically blame God for all the problems that we face and take no responsibility for our own sins. So then in this, in this article, Rush Juni goes on to describe the society of Satan. Because he first looks at the society of God, city of God, and now looks at the society of Satan. And he lists a few characteristics of it. So I'm going to read just a portion of each of these characteristics um, that, again, I think you might find very relevant. Quote, What is the nature of the society of Satan? First, it is held that man is not guilty of his sin, not responsible for his lawlessness, for the sources of his guilt are not personal, but social and natural. In the ultimate sense, the guilt is God's, for having dared to create so difficult a cosmos, and God, as well as God's people, must be made to pay for this cosmic insolence. Second, a society is demanded in which it is unnecessary for man to be good. Everything is to be provided so that man may attain true blessedness, a problem-free life. The Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3-12, in pronouncing a blessing on suffering, persecution, tears, and trials for Christ's sake, are thus the epitome of perversion. A good God must make it unnecessary for men to be good, and having failed to do so, the good state, the welfare state, must now make it unnecessary for man to be tested, unnecessary for man to be good. Man has all rights and no responsibilities. The duties are God's, who has failed in his duty to man. Third, a society is demanded in which it is impossible for men to be bad. This is the logical concomitant of the second demand. It is a demand that there be no testing. How cruel of God to test Adam and to test us. The world must be trouble-free and test-free. The goal of most politics and sociology is to provide us with such a world. Is anyone bad? Let this fact be concealed from him, and the world be so ordered that self-knowledge never comes out. And because every man is God in his own eyes, and God in terms of this sociology of Satan, then every man must be preserved from any testing that might shatter this illusion. Let politics and social planning operate on the premise of human omnipotence. Thus, there are no insoluble problems. Man shall conquer all things, the cosmos and death included. Let no testing shatter his delusions of grandeur. End quote. Before I go on to the, the, the next quality of the society of Satan, I want to just make a, a brief comment. We already saw first, yes, the transfer of guilt. And, and catch this. He says, since the guilt is God's, God, as well as God's people, must pay the penalty. That's important. And that's one of the reasons why the church is often persecuted. They are blamed for the problems of this world. And their God is blamed for the problems of this world. And as Jesus said, you know, if we're his followers, we should not be surprised when we get the same treatment that he got. And then in the second part here, where it is unnecessary for man to be good, again, it's the state's job to make everybody happy and to give everyone what they need and to provide the perfect environment. Because remember now, remember, man is good. So man is not the problem. The problem is the environment. The problem is our surroundings. So technically, if you give him the perfect environment, 
man won't sin. He won't make mistakes. He won't do bad things. So what you have to do is fix the environment, fix the structure, rebuild everything. And that's what the government tries to do. That's what the state does. And then in the third part, we see that the society of Satan just declares that it's, you know, man is a God in his own eyes. And so don't, don't say or do anything that might shatter that illusion. Okay, so, so we are gods. All of us are gods. All of us are omnipotent. So, but don't test anybody. Don't put us to the test because if you do that, we'll fail. So that's the idea. Uh, everyone is a god, but we can't test or challenge anyone because that might shatter the delusions of grandeur in our minds. So I'm going to continue now to the, the fourth section. Quote, fourth, a society is demanded in which it is impossible for men to fail. There must be no failure in heaven or on earth. All men must be saved. All students must pass. All men are employable. All men are entitled to rights. As Satan stated it boldly in the wilderness, giving in short form the program for the good state, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. So we see again the fourth aspect of the society is that all men must be saved. All students must pass. So it's impossible to fail. Again, failure of a person implies a couple things from this mindset. Number one, the environment is not good. Again, the only reason that things are bad is because of the environment, not because of mankind, not because of our sin. So if people are failing, it's not the fault of the student. It's the fault of the environment, not of opportunities, or maybe it's the coach's fault or the teacher's fault. And also, if anybody fails, that will shatter their illusions that they are God, that they are omnipotent and all-powerful, and that they can be like God. That would humble us, and we dare not be humbled in the society of Satan. So these are the four aspects of the society of Satan that uh, Rush Juni brings out. Now he goes on to talk about the Tower of Babel, which we mentioned uh, earlier, and he quotes from Genesis chapter 11, and this is what I want to talk about in this section of the article. We're at the very last section here, uh, but he brings out several points to keep in mind regarding the Tower of Babel. So here is what he has to say, quote, we have first the declaration, go to, let us build us a city. The essence of a city was a unity of faith and community in terms of that faith. The idea of a city was a religious concept and the city a religious entity and community. Historians speak of ancient cities as possessing, each of them, a particular god and being the people of that god. This is both accurate and yet erroneous in the impression it conveys. All the people of a particular area, such as Canaan or the Mesopotamian region, Egypt and the like, would share a particular faith. But each city would be a particular cult or system of worship of that god, affirming its own particular form of continuity with the deity. In the city of God, community is through the Redeemer in God. In the city of man, the society of Satan, the ground of communion, is a common humanity, irrespective of any religious or moral differences. All differences, including those of intellect and status, must be suppressed in favor of the anonymity of union. The good life and the full life are in and through the state. 
the theological requirements for the unity of the Godhead, requires in this faith the unity of humanity, its one true God. Hence, let us build us a city, a one-world order, and usher in paradise apart from God. End quote. So here, Rushduni points out that one of the aspects of the Tower of Babel is that this community is building a city, and cities are inherently religious. They're, they're centered or ordered around some principle, some idea, some god. And in this case, in the Tower of Babel, the idea is man. Man is God. He is the one true God. And so that is unity. Unity is found in man's common humanity. But this means that all differences have to be suppressed because, you know, God forbid that there be any kind of hierarchy, that one man rise above the others, whether being smarter or faster or funnier or better looking or whatever the case may be. No, no, no. God forbid that there be any one above anybody else because that would take away from the unity of mankind this new god and so we see this happening today in our culture where all differences have to be suppressed Um, everyone is equal in every way all marriages are equal all forms of genders are equal all forms of sexuality are equal everyone is equal and nobody can uh, be above or higher than anybody else even if it's not out of sin doesn't really matter any disparity any difference between two groups or two people for that matter is due to sin due to some evil and that's what we're kind of seeing with this victim culture mentality that that we see happening today in things like you know critical race theory uh, cultural marxism the idea that there's always an oppressor and there's always oppressed there's always a victim and any differences between groups has to be because of racism. So we'll continue with the, the next portion that Rush Juni has to say about the Tower of Babel. Quote, Another step characterized this great institutionalization of the society of Satan. Let us make us a name, or literally a Shem. A name in the Old Testament meant a definition. It was a summary statement of the nature of the thing named. Adam's task of naming the creatures was thus a scientific calling, to identify and to classify them. When God called a man out of Chaldea, he first named him Abram, and then later expanded that name to Abraham in terms of his calling, task, and definition his sovereign grace gave to that man. God's name, Jehovah, I am that I am, or he who is, was the rejection of the possibility of a name or definition for God. He as creator is that by whom and in whom all things are defined. And being transcended by nothing can be defined by nothing. He is. In terms of all of this, the meaning of the proclamation, let us make us a name, becomes clear. Let us be our own blessing, our own Messiah, Savior and God. Let us be our own creator, our own ultimate source of meaning and definition. Let there be no value above and beyond us. Let man be the source of the definition, not the subject of it, Let man be beyond good and evil and beyond meaning, since he is himself the source of all definition. Let us make us a name, end quote. So that is the next portion that Rushduni brings out regarding the Tower of Babel, this idea of the name. And they want to make a name for themselves. And it's, it's pretty clear. They don't want God to name them. They don't want God to be over them. The idea of naming something 
is a sign of authority and power over that thing. And so in Babel, in the idolatry of mankind, we will make ourselves our own name. And again, we see this in our culture today. And it's, it's quite striking because you have individuals that have defined their own gender. They are renaming themselves in accordance with their own gender. They declare, I am X, I am this gender, I am woman or man or whatever the case may be. They are playing God and, and basically adopting the same mentality as the Tower of Babel. Let me continue with the next uh, couple portions from Rush Juni here. Quote, The next reason for their labor is stated, Lest we be scattered. This is the evil to man in the society of Satan. Disunity, not apostasy or rebellion against God. Another aspect of the society of Satan is noted by God as he confounds it. Nothing will be restrained from them. The one world order sought by the society of Satan means absolute dictatorship and total power. But this is what God will not permit. At the ostensible moment of triumph, he visits destruction and confusion upon them. To the men of Babel, their name meant the gate of God, i.e. the threshold of their greatness and total power. To us, because of God, the true meaning remains confusion, because Babel was a confusion of the divine order. Confusion was visited upon it. And the very judgment was an act of mercy in that it spared man from the total tyranny he sought to create, end quote. So here, two aspects are also brought forth uh, by Rush Juni. First, that the reason for the Tower of Babel's working is they don't want to be scattered. So again, in their eyes, the worst possible thing that could happen is to be disunited is to not be unified. And so anything that challenges their unity is an affront to them. It is, it's wicked, it's evil in their eyes. And you'll see this in our culture today. If you challenge the authority and the power of the, of the government or the state or whatever is culturally accepted today, you are pushing divisiveness. You're pushing disunity. You're not a team player. You are causing problems. And it's interesting is that God's response is to do exactly that in the Tower of Babel, to bring confusion upon them. And Rush Duty points out that uh, God says nothing will be restrained from them. Not that they are going to be as powerful as God, but as Rush Duty says here, that they would have total dictatorship and total power. I mean, imagine, imagine the society of Satan, the Tower of Babel, being successful in establishing a, a world power, a government that has no God above it, that they themselves are God. What kind of tyrannical system would that be? Absolute power, absolute authority. And so what Rush Duny points out here is that God's confusing and, and scattering of the people was actually a form of mercy because even though they wanted to be God and to not worship the true God, what they were going to get is pure tyranny, pure absolute power from an uncontrollable tyrant. And God thwarted that, and in effect, this was merciful upon them. I want to finish this episode by reading the last portion of Rush Juni's article here. And here is what he has to say about this conflict between the city of God and the city of Satan. Quote, The warfare today is between the city of God 
which is transcendental in origin, although present in history, and the totally imminent city of God, the society of Satan. That demoniac order seeks to obscure the fact of conflict and to wage war behind the deceptive weapon of ostensible neutrality. We must recognize that this is a holy warfare. Be unafraid to wage it and proclaim that the sentence has already gone forth. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Alerting Christians with the summons, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Men who look for the good life in and through the state have made the state their mediator and redeemer, and have in effect renounced Christ, and they shall be partakers of the plagues of Babylon, of the society of Satan. End quote. So, what's interesting about this last section here is that there is a warfare, a battle that wages between the city of God, which is ultimately transcendent. So that's why he says it is, it, it's from heaven, it's God's. But it's also present in history through his people, and through Christ. And it's that city of God versus the, the, the fake or the faux city of God, the city of Satan. And this war takes place between the two groups. But the society of Satan would, would be deceptive and, and say, well, no, we're just being neutral. There's no war. We're, we're actually being perfectly neutral. But the fact is, is that that's not the case. And we see this today with the name of tolerance, right? The society of Satan, the man, the city of man, claims to be tolerant of everyone and all. Equality for everyone, tolerance for all, except for those who disagree, except for those pesky members of the city of God. No, no, they will not be tolerated, and they are not equal. In fact, they're to be blamed for the problem. They're not part of the solution, and they will be punished for it. So this is the conflict that's going on. And again, I just read this article not too long ago and was really struck by it because of how how relevant it is today, despite it being over 40 years old. So this brings us to the end of season one of Governed by God. And I hope that over the next month or so uh, during the break that you will consider the world around you, that you'll look at it through the eyes of Scripture and and see the conflict that's taking place and decide which side that you're on. And as a Christian, I encourage you to continue to to serve and strive for that city of God where the Lord is king, where Christ reigns. But it's only through the gospel that this city expands. It's not... It's not uh, a warfare done by the weapons of this world. The war is done by the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer and the proclamation of the gospel. And so I'd encourage you to go and wage that spiritual warfare and do so in the name of Christ and trusting in Him. So thank you again for tuning in. And until next season, take care and God bless.